Thank you for joining us for today's message. We are always so encouraged to hear how God is using Adventure Church to speak into your life. If you have a story you'd like to share, please do so at adventure.church slash my story. Also, if you would like to support Adventure Church financially, you can do that online and help us bring messages just like this one to you each and every week. Now let's prepare to hear a word from God. How are we doing today, Adventure Church? I was expecting a little more for me, honestly, than that. Um, hey, it's exciting to see you got National um, Ice Cream Day after church today. That's, that's cool. When you're my size, every day is National Ice Cream Day, if we're going to be honest. Uh, it's never a bad time for ice cream. Um, I'm glad to be here with you today. Uh, Kyle and Jess, they're great friends. And uh, I told him last night, I said, with the pace your church is growing and with what God is doing here, um, it won't be long and your church will be supporting our church financially. And so uh, I love seeing what God is doing here. And I want you to know that what God is doing here is unique and it's special. And I want you to know you uh, are privileged to be a part of something like this. Because there are so many churches in America that are in decline, that the leadership is just scraping, trying to figure out how to, how to make things grow and how to make things happen. And, and uh, you have great leaders who have great vision for this house and for what God wants to do here. And so I just want you to know uh, I'm privileged to be here with you today, and I'm excited to see what God's going to do at Adventure Church. Um, so real briefly, um, I've got a wife, two daughters. Um, I've got a daughter that'll be 15 in a couple of weeks. Uh, Abby, she told me um, about a month ago, she said, hey, Dad, did you know in 37 months I'm going to college? And I went, oh, like, oh my gosh. And it's not because I'm old or my baby's growing up. It's because I thought, how are we going to pay for college in 37 months? Um, so um, I've got a daughter that's f- almost 15. Uh, she's on a missions trip in New York at the New York Dream Center with a team from our church. And then uh, I've got a daughter who's 11, Emma, will be 12 this fall. And uh, so I've got two daughters that are in youth ministry, which that makes me feel old. And then my wife and I have been married almost 18 years. It'll be 18 years in September, and she's a fantastic partner in ministry. Um, she'll be here in our, the 11 o'clock service today. But uh, I just, I'm so, um, I'm so honored to be the dad and the husband of that house. And I've told my, my leadership at my church, uh, somebody else could pastor Summit Church and probably do it better than I could, but I hope nobody else ever is the husband to my wife or the dad to my kids. And so if I can pick one job, it's going to be the job in my house and not the job on the stage at my church. Uh, but I've got, a, I've got a great family. Also, I have a wonderful church. Uh, we've been there since January of 2014, just a little bit after uh, Adventure Church was launched. And, um, and God's just doing amazing things, and it's fun to be a part of. And I've got a great team, and, uh, and it's kind of sad. We're doing a series. I'm, this is, I'm digressing. We're doing a series uh, at our church, and it really is drawing unbelievers. It's called At the Movies, and you've probably seen stuff like that around. A lot of churches do it. But my, my associate pastor's doing Back to the Future today, and we have an actual DeLorean with, like, the, all the – it's at the church, and I'm like – I must really love Kyle if I'm here today and I'm missing the DeLorean at my church. But I didn't know you had ice cream, so it kind of balances out. So anyway, uh, again, we're in the series called When in Rome, and we're continuing that series today. Uh, I want to walk through a passage of scripture with you. It's in Romans chapter 12, and, uh, and I just want to read this with you, and then we'll unpack it a little bit together. In verse 9 of Romans chapter 12, it says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. 
contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So when you look at this verse, you go, okay, well, this is kind of a hodgepodge of stuff. It's almost like some advice on how to get along with people and how to go to church, right? It feels like relationship stuff and church stuff kind of intermingled. But really, when you look at this and you understand the culture, um, in this day and age, there was no differentiation between church and the rest of our lives. Church was life. And, and this is where we as Americans, we have kind of mastered this art of separating our spiritual life from everything else, separating church from everything else. And we wedge it in to our schedule if we can. And what the early church had, what the first century church really understood is that the church is the hub of life. That's where life happens. Um, so it's not about relationships and job and all these other things. And then church, it is all together. And so when we look at this passage, it really is about our spiritual life and our relationships and all these things intermingling together. Um, and so that's what I want us to look at for a few minutes today, because we, we're going to talk about relationships, and it's relationships in the context of church, but it's also applicable to the relationships in your life, your marriage, your dating life, uh, relationships uh, at your workplace. I feel like there's application here in a number of different ways. So let's just walk through this together and... and and, and see what God wants to say to us today. But this is what I want you to understand. The church is not a building. This is not the church that we're in today. This is just a building that we happen to worship in. Um, you and I are the church. We are the body of Christ. Um, and so that's what you have to understand as we walk through this together. So in verse 9, it says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast what is good. And I love this because what Paul does is, is he's giving instruction to the church, but he, he doesn't start with holiness, does he? See, in church, sometimes we have this in our mind, okay, I'm going to come to church, and I've got to get my life right, so I'm going to stop doing all these things. I'm going to stop sinning, I'm going to, whatever it might be, and, and then hopefully everything else will work out. But what Paul says is, no, 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 um, focus first on love, and then take care of all the holiness stuff, because when we line up our priorities that way, when we get our relationships right with the people around us, and our relationship with, right with God, then it facilitates things being healthier in our lives, and our priorities lining up naturally. Um, but what happens is, we try to force it, we think, well, if I just go to church, if I just, maybe if I start going to a small group, maybe that'll help. Maybe if I get in a Bible study, maybe if, but if we focus on, God, I want, I want my love for you and my love for others to be healthy, then everything else begins to fall into place. Um, when we white-knuckle it, we get ourselves into trouble. Um, so I love this, that he begins with love. And he says, hey, let your love be genuine. Let it be true. And this word for love here, it's, um, there's four primary words for love in the Greek language. And, and we'll see a couple of them in this passage. But phileo, um, it's, I live in Pennsylvania. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, right? And that's where phileo is, brotherly love. This is a love that, that you might have for someone who's a close friend. Uh, this is the love I have for Kyle. Uh, we're not related, but he's like a brother to me. I love him. Okay, so this is brotherly love, that there's an intimacy or closeness. Um, you have a storge, it's an affectionate love that you might have for a, a, a relative or a spouse. So I love Kyle, but I don't love him in a storge love. Um, I, I love my daughter in a storge love. My daughter will get up on my lap and she'll cuddle with me and give me kisses on the cheek. If Kyle did that, right? <laughs> Awkward at best. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's... it's uh, we don't want that. It's, so does that make sense? So you got phileo, you got storge, and then there's an eros. It's a passionate love. It's, it's a sexual love. And again, right? <laughs> so um, the thing that all three of these loves have in common is they're naturally occurring. 
that I don't have to make myself be attracted to my wife. I'm attracted to my wife naturally. Um, I don't have to uh, make myself be friends with Kyle. We've got just a natural connection and a brotherly love. And so all these relationships happen naturally. There's a fourth kind of love, and this is what we see here, where it says, let love be genuine. It's agape, and this is a, a love that you've heard about before, but this is a sacrificial love. It's an act of will. It's, it's choosing to love when we don't feel like loving. This is the person in your workplace that uh, just pushes your buttons all the time, that gets on your nerves, that drives you crazy. This is uh, how you feel like your boss is constantly out to get you, and you know you should love them, and so you love them, and you're like, yes, God, I love them. But you, you know what I mean? It's an act of will. You have to make yourself do something you don't want to do. It's not natural. Uh, but what we see over and over in Scripture is this is the way God loves us with an agape love, that he loves us sacrificially. He gives his son for us. And so what we see here is, is Paul is giving instruction to the Roman church to love each other sacrificially, even if you don't feel like it, even if the person looks different than you, even if the person acts different than you, even if the person voted for the other candidate in the election, love each other. And it's easy to say and it's hard to do. But this is what God has called us to do, is to love each other. And it's not, for, um, it's not for the good of the church, it is. It's not for the good of the kingdom, and that's part of it too. But it's really for our own good. When we choose to love, it's amazing what frees up in our life and the space it's created in our life. And so he says, love genuinely, agape, sacrificially. In an unnatural way, in a way that doesn't come easily. Love that way. In fact, this is what we see in, in 1 Corinthians 13. It's quoted in every wedding you've ever been to. Uh, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. But that love that we see there is uh, Paul talking to the Corinthian church about loving sacrificially. An agape love. It's not a, a romantic love that we see when they talk about weddings. It is a sacrificial love that he's directing the church and saying, hey, if you want to get along, you're bickering, you're fighting, this is what you do. You sacrifice yourself. You lay yourself down for the good of the other person. And that's what we see in Romans. Um, so let me keep going. So let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So again, it's, it's this idea that we're going to avoid evil at all costs and we're going to hold on to what is holy and good and righteous in the Lord. Verse 10 says, now listen to this, love one another with brotherly affection. So this is the phileo love. Love one another with brotherly affection. Listen to this, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, there aren't very many times in Scripture we see that we should be competitive with each other, but this is one instance where we're encouraged to be competitive with each other, that we need to outdo each other in honor, that it should be our goal to honor each other in the body better than we're honored. And, and so many times it's about, well, I didn't get the attention for that. Well, I thought I was going to do that. Nobody asked me. Why didn't anybody invite me to that group? I didn't get invited for lunch, whatever it might be. But what we have to do is go, hey, it's not about me. It's about the other people. And I want to I outdo the other people around me in honor. I want to bless. I want to help. I want to serve. And when we have that attitude, when we love with a brotherly way, so not just a, an affection that, that comes unnaturally that we have to fight through and make ourselves, but when we say, hey, um, there are people around me I'm going to choose to love, and I get to love them, and, man, we're just connected in our hearts. And I want to honor them. I want to bless them. I want to build them up. God works in that. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Um, when we choose to love people in spite of how we feel, it's amazing how God will break down walls in our own hearts and the, the walls around us as well. Romans 12, 11 says this, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Um, 
when I was, uh, my sister, my, my, I've got a, a sister that's five years older than me. When I was a kid, she would call me sloth. Um, and it's because I moved so slowly in the mornings. And some of you, some of you relate to this. Like, man, it just takes you a while to get your engine going in the morning. And so when I was a kid, I'm seven, eight years old, I would sit and I'd be watching cartoons, eating, getting ready for breakfast, and I would eat, oh so slow and she just called me sloth and and uh, I really understood that uh, that meant you're taking your time you're not moving very quickly and so when I look at this verse immediately that pops to mind that um, what Paul is saying is hey be quick to be zealous and excited and the word zeal or zealous or zealot uh, kind of has a, a negative connotation to us because we think of um, radical fringe people or groups, but the truth is the scripture calls for us to be zealous in our relationship with God, that we should be fervent and excited and passionate. In fact, the word fervent there, the picture it paints is this, this, um, this picture of a pot that's boiling. So uh, when this pot is boiling, heat is applied and then energy happens, movement happens, life is happening as this, this pot is boiling. And so what we have to understand is in the relationships around us, we have to be quick to activate them, be in a relationship, to look for opportunities. I grew up in church, and I sound like an old person when I say this, but in my day, when I was a young kid, there wasn't a weekend that we didn't go to somebody's house after church for lunch or someone wasn't invited to our house after church for lunch. That doesn't happen today. And I'm not condemning you. It doesn't happen in our church very much either um, because society has changed. It doesn't happen naturally. We have to make ourselves do things like that. And this is what you have to understand. We don't drift to improvement. Is my beard just overcoming? The masculinity of my beard is just overtaking this mic. We don't drift to improvement. We drift to mediocrity at best. So, so what we have to understand is um, I didn't... <laughs> if I could imagine working out and be V-shaped like Kyle is or Jake or one of these, I would, right? But it takes force, it takes movement, it takes action. Uh, if you're driving down the road and you decide, I'm going to take a little nap, and you take your hands off the wheel, you're going to end up in the ditch, okay? You're not going to end up in your driveway because you drift to the ditch, you drift to mediocrity. And so what you have to understand in our spiritual life, in relationships as well, we have to apply force. We have to say, hey, I'm going to do something about this. Um, because as a fire is burning, you apply fuel to it, and it begins to burn out over time. And the same is true in our relationships, the people around us, in your marriage, in your friendships, in your relationship with God. If you don't continue to add fuel, if you don't apply force, if you don't do something, at some point, you're going to go, well, I don't feel like praying anymore. I don't know, I just don't feel like going to church anymore. I don't feel like being in that small group anymore. It's because you've let your zeal begin to die. You've let your fervency, your passion, your fervor begin to, to dwindle. And as a result, um, as a result, just everything is a little duller in our lives. And God wants us to understand that these things matter. The relationships are important. The people around us are important. The life we have is, is only really life because of the people around us. Um, he says, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. And then he says, serve the Lord. And it, a lot of times when we think about serving, we think about being an usher or greeter. And those things are important. Parking lot, whatever it might be. All those things are important. But what he's saying in this context is we serve the Lord in relationships. 
So as I'm zealous in my relationship with the people around us, as I pursue relationship, as I try to, to pour into people and allow them to pour into me, what happens is that's an act of service to the Lord. God is glorified through that. That is an act of worship in many ways. Um, and so God is trying to direct us that way and point us that direction, but sometimes we miss it because we're distracted. You know, when we, we talk about um, the consumption or con- being consumed, um, there's a passage that came to mind, and it's in John chapter 2. In this passage, Jesus has just finished clearing the temple. So there were money changers in the temple. There were people who, if you didn't bring a sacrifice, you could buy a sacrifice. So it's a one-stop shop in the temple. And so Jesus gets a little ticked off. I know you don't think Jesus should get ticked off, but he did. He gets ticked off. It's a righteous anger. And he fashions a whip, and he goes through, and he kicks all the money changers out of the temple. He just drives them out. And I don't know what he was saying. I don't know if he did it calmly and he had this angelic glow about him. I don't know. It doesn't say specifically. But he, he drives the money changers out and the disciples see him in a way that they've never seen him before. Um, and this is what, they, what it says in John chapter 2 verse 17. Um, it says, his disciples remembered that it was written. So they see this happen and then they remember it being written in Psalm. It said, a zeal for your house will consume me. And so they connect these two, this passage from Psalm 69.9, they connect it to this action they see, and they go, okay, hey, you know what? Jesus is acting the way he's acting because he's got zeal and a passion and a fervency for the house of God. Um, and, and this is what I don't see in the United States largely, is people acting with a fervency and a passion for the house of God. And again, I want you to understand, the house of God is not this building. The house of God is you and I. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Right? And so what we have to understand is we need to be as passionate about the body of Christ and about the house of God and about the people around us as Jesus was in the temple. When he was driving money changers out, it wasn't about his anger toward the money changers. It was about his desire for the house of God to be a holy place and be honored. And what we have to do is understand that the people around us are the house of God, that God wants to be glorified, God wants to work, and we need to do everything in our power to be zealous and passionate about the house of God, about who we are and about the people around us as well. When we see this, this passion, this zeal, it should inspire us. It says, zeal for your house will consume me. And I guess my question is, what's consuming you? Because we're consumed by a lot of things. But I can tell you, I'm a pastor of a church. And I, I can't say that my zeal for the house of God consumes me, but that's my prayer, God. Let, let a zeal for your house, for your people consume me. Let it drive me. Let it overtake me. That everything in my life is focused on that. And that's a scary prayer for some of us because we go, well, I like my life the way it is. I don't want things to change. But this is the thing. God wants your thinking to change. He wants your life to change. He doesn't want to be a piece of the pie. He wants to be the pie. So what are you passionate about? What are you fervent about? Where is your zeal? What's consuming you? Romans 12, 12 says this. It says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And these are easy things to say whenever we're not dealing with them. So like, you know, Paul talks about rejoicing in suffering, and we go, yes, we should rejoice in suffering. Then when we're suffering, we go, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. How can I rejoice in suffering, right? You know, my, pay, you know, my paycheck bounced. I'm not going to rejoice in suffering. Um, you know, I've got insufficient funds in my bank account. I'm not going to rejoice in that, right? I got fired. 
Rejoice. It doesn't make sense. But what Paul says over and over and over again is in spite of our circumstances, rejoice because our circumstances are, are changing and flux, but God is constant and he is constantly worthy of glory and honor and praise. So he says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Um, so this word hope, um, I love it because um, the, the Greek word for hope is closely associated with the, the Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word for hope is kavah. Um, and we see it, at, it throughout the Old Testament. But I, one of my favorites is in Isaiah 49, verse 23. And in, in, in this passage, um, in the book of Isaiah, Paul is, I mean, God is speaking through the prophet to the, the nation of Judah um, and the Israel. It's this tribe. But anyway, um, he's speaking to the nation of Judah and uh, they've been in Assyrian captivity. They're going into Babylonian captivity. All they know is captivity. They don't know freedom. Uh, that's all they've got. And so you've got this group of people that are frustrated and disgruntled. And they're going, God, do you even know where we're at? Have you forgotten about us? I'm in this situation in this place that I don't even think you see us. And, and this passage in Isaiah 49, 23 says, uh, he's giving this instruction saying, here's all the things I'm going to do. And he says, then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And it's interesting because the Hebrew word for hope is also used here as wait. And that's interesting to me because um, many times we're waiting on something and we're waiting, but we don't have much hope. We're going, God, are you ever going to do this? I don't think you're going to do it. Are you going to fix my marriage? I don't think you are. God, are you going to help me with my, I don't know if you're going to fix, my son is far from God. Lord, are you ever going to bring, I don't, I don't know if you are. Because this word kavah, it, it means um, to, to wait with patience and full expectation. So imagine one of my greatest fears as a child was being uh, like out to sea with just a life ring and that's it. You know, because I had a fear. I saw Jaws at a young age. Like one of my cousins let me watch it. And then I was terrified of tubs after that. Any body of water I would not get into because I just knew like he's going to get in the tub somehow. It's going to happen. So I had this fear of be, like drifting out to sea. So when I was like, little and I couldn't swim, I'd be in like a, a ring and I would make sure, like, hey, don't let me get too far out here because it was a lake in Oklahoma. And I was concerned that maybe, you know, Jaws is going to show up. Who knows, right? Um, and, and this passage, kavah, or this word kavah, it means if I was stranded at sea with nothing but a life ring in the middle of the ocean, I couldn't see land or ships anywhere within eyesight. I could wait, hopefully and joyfully, knowing, expecting that my rescue is on the way. And for you, maybe you're here and you're going, but Mel, you don't know my situation. You're exactly right, I don't. How can I be hopeful in my situation? Well, you can be hopeful because, gosh, it sounds like such a cliche to say it like this, but God knows your situation. And the same God that overcame death and hell in the grave, you, you think your financial situation's a problem? You think your, your marriage situation's a problem for God? No, no, no. What you have to do is understand that, hey, during this, this season, you might have to wait, but there's hope in the waiting. And so in this passage, it says, rejoice in hope, this kavah. And one of the cool things about this word kavah, 
Uh, one of the meanings is to bind together. So what happens is um, when I begin to hope and your hope and my hope are in alignment together, it binds us, it brings us together. There's this idea that our hope is more powerful in the context of relationships. That when I hope, it's one thing, but when I hope and believe with a group of believers, people around me, it brings an alignment and a power to our hope that we don't have on our own. There's this idea that community hope does something in us and for us that us hoping by ourselves does not do. So it says, rejoice in hope. And then it goes on to say, be patient in tribulation. Again, who can be patient in tribulation? Um, the Greek word for tribulation is thlipsis. Um, and listen to this. I love this. It means pressure, right? Does anybody here live with pressure in your life? Oh, you liars. We all have pressure. Every one of us does. No matter what your job is. I live in a college town and I have college students. Okay, if you're a college student, I love you. I really love college students. But I'll have college students to be like, man, Pastor Mel, pray for me. Man, things are so hard. My schedule's so busy. I'll be like, well, what's going on? What's, what's happening to your schedule? Well, I mean, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I've got a class from 10 to 2 classes. And then um, on Thursdays, I've got, I've got an 8 to 9.30 class. Okay, what else? I mean, that's it, but it's just overwhelming me. Like, you're crazy, right? Like, you don't even know. I got to work. I don't get to choose, right? I got a mortgage to pay, and I got kids that I'm trying to raise and send to college in 37 months. Like, come on, right? That's pressure. And you have got a different set of pressure than I do. And you're going, your pressure is not pressure. I've got pressure, right? So we all have pressure. This is the beautiful thing about this word thlipsis. It means pressure, but then another way to interpret it is pressing together. See, when we endure pressure on our own, it will destroy us. But you know, some, some of you are in a marriage and you feel pressure because you handle the financial burden in your family. You pay the bills and you've got a spouse maybe that's just doing their own thing. And you feel the pressure. Maybe at your workplace you feel pressure and you feel like you're the only one handling the pressure. And you know it feels like it's going to crush you. But, but when, we, when we are able to come together in relationship with people, and not just, not just hope together, but also endure tribulation together. What happens is it presses us together. We endure pressure together, uh, and all of a sudden it's not one of us taking it. It's, it's multiple. It's a community of people enduring pressure together. Again, it brings alignment to our lives that we never really understood before. We weren't meant to endure pressure on our own. But that's what we do many times. And it says, be constant in prayer. And you go, how do you be constant in prayer? Because we, we think prayer is just, you come forward, you kneel at an altar, you pray by your bed at night, you fold your hands, whatever you do, this is what we do, this is how you pray. Um, but, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a pastor, I pray all day long. I, I have to. <laughs> I need it. And so I'm praying all day long. After I get out of an appointment with somebody or I'm leaving a coffee shop, I'll say a quick prayer. God, thank you so much for that relationship. Thank you so much for that person that, they get, that I get to be encouraged by them, that you can bless me. Sometimes I pray, God, thank you for this person, that you're helping me see how good you are because their life stinks and my life is pretty good in, in respect, right? Whatever it is, I'm, I'm praying constantly. And it's just a quick little prayer. God, thank you. Dear Jesus, help me. Whatever it might be, that's a prayer. But the point is that we... We institute a rule that makes us pray all the time. But the point is that our intimacy with Jesus, our relationship with Jesus is so close that he's never far from our mind. Do you remember when you first started dating uh, someone? 
and you were constantly thinking about, oh, I'm going to leave a little note on their car or whatever it might be, you know, and you'd call them on the phone, and you'd talk, and you'd talk about nothing. you get off the phone, and you go, okay, you hang up? No, you hang up. No, you hang up. You just didn't want it to go, right? At the end of a day, you just linger around and be like, okay, you know, and you just stand there and wait because you just like being around each other. And the idea is the same with our relationship with Christ, that we just enjoy his presence so much, we don't want to be far from it. That we just go, God, I want, you, I want to invite intimacy into every area of my life all day long. That I'm not going to segment different portions, that you are everything, you are part of it. Verse 13, this is the last one, says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, hospitality was an important part of life in this day and age. Even today, when you go to the Middle East, uh, hospitality is an important part. They welcome guests in, even guests that look and act differently than they are. They will welcome them to offer hospitality. So this is an important part, not just culturally of who they were, but as far as who we are as Christians, that hospitality and welcoming people and making them feel at home should be a part of of who we are, not just at the church, because we're good at that. You guys are great about making people feel comfortable in this church. They come in, they're welcomed. You got two minutes to get grilled. If you're a guest here today, two minutes, you had to run the gauntlet of people coming up and being friendly with you. Like, well done, right? Um, but this is a friendly church, but hospitality doesn't end when you walk out this door. Hospitality is how we live our lives, that we welcome people, we make them feel comfortable. And this is what Paul's saying to this church, like this is how you live your life, this is the marks of a Christian, this is the way Christians should live. But the first part of that, listen to this, says contribute to the needs of the saints. And sometimes we relegate giving to saying, okay, well I know Pastor Kyle, he says we got to give, so we're going to give something, and we tip or we'll throw a five in or whatever it is, and that's fine. He didn't tell me to talk about this, by the way, so uh, I'm just, this is bonus coverage. Um, but what it says is contribute to the needs of the saints. And I love this because the word contribute here, in, in context, what it really means is to partner together um, or to, to be a shareholder, if I can say it like that. If you're a shareholder of a company, um, you would understand that you've invested in this company, and so the, the risk and the reward are not just on the person, but you're part of that. And so what this means is when we see a brother or sister in need and we come alongside them, we partner with them, we're now a stakeholder in their suffering, that, that we invest in them and that we are sharing our lives together. Does that make sense at all? That we say, hey, I'm not just going to throw some money at you to help you with your problem, but I'm coming alongside you, and we're sharing this together. The weight of this issue is not just on you, but it's on me too. So, so we're, we're opening up our hearts to each other, and this is terribly risky, if we're going to be honest. Because we've all been burned, we've all been hurt, we've all been disappointed. Maybe you're here, and you've come from another church that you were disappointed in, you were burned by, you were hurt. I'll be honest with you. I would love to tell you that would never happen at this church. But do you know what I know about this church? It's full of people. And people sometimes do stupid things. But this is what I know about this church. This church is committed to creating healthy environments for people to grow in relationship with each other and, and grow in their relationship with God. Uh, I tell our church this all the time. Um, and maybe Pastor Kyle said something like this. But if I asked you today, name five messages that have really impacted your life. Five sermons that have just transformed you, you'd have a hard time. You'd struggle to come up with five sermons and be able to go, oh yeah, on this date they preached this message, here's what they said. Probably not. But if I said, hey, name five people that have changed your life, that have impacted you, you could probably do that, couldn't you? 
You go, oh, my coach, my mom, my dad, my grandma, she prayed for me, my Sunday school teacher, whatever it is, you could come up with five probably pretty easily. And what God is trying to help us understand through a passage like this is that we grow in the context of relationships. Sunday mornings are important, but this is not where growth happens. Growth happens in the context of relationships with others. When we share our lives with people, when we take the risk of opening up our hearts and allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and allowing someone else in, that's when growth happens. That's when we learn more about the love of Christ and the, the growing in the body of Christ and becoming who God wants us to be. That's where we share our wins and our losses. That's where we share the pressure that we deal with in our tribulation. And that's where we align our hope. That's where that happens. Is in the context of relationships. And I know in a church like this, it's so easy to, to come in, you say, hi, oh, I know, yeah, and you leave, and you never build relationships. You talk to people for two minutes in service, one minute before, one minute after, two minutes during, that's it. And you go, well, I know these people. No, you don't, because you're not sharing your life. You're not opening up your heart. And this is what Scripture has called us to do. Now, listen, this is the thing. We don't do it because Scripture has called us to do it. We do it because that's where we come alive. I have a lady in our church that... Uh, she is um, uh, she's a high achiever. Uh, she works in a huge pharmacy in our area. She's got about 85 employees that she supervises. Uh, and she's, man, she does really well. I mean, she's just great. She's sharp. And, and she's a person that uh, we've asked, said, hey, come get involved. Come get plugged in. And she told me the other day we were having a conversation. And she, and she just got teary-eyed and started crying. But she said, Mel, um, when I started serving in this church, it changed my life. And I said, how come? And she said, well, I thought I was just signing up to do something. And she said, but what I didn't realize is I started getting in relationship with these people I was serving with. And she said, they're my best friends. She said, I don't know what I would do if I hadn't started serving. My life has changed because of the people that I served with. And she said, it is the most incredible thing ever. And she said, I've been part of this church a long time. So what she didn't say, she didn't say this, but this is what she meant. Your messages are great, but my life was changed when I got into relationship with people. That's what she was saying. And she was passionate about it. She's probably never cried about one of my sermons, right? Like, man, it was so good. It's incredible. But she's standing there in the parking lot of our church saying, my best friends are in this church. Thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to serve. And she would have missed it because she thought it was just another program or another thing to add to her agenda or another to-do list or a thing on her to-do list. But that's not the case. See, when, when God invites us into relationship, he's inviting us into true life in him. Um... Oh, there, there's a quote that I like. It's uh, William Butler Yeats said, there are no strangers here, only friends you haven't yet met. And I love that. Because there's this idea that, um, that in the body of Christ, there are no strangers. Maybe there's been people in this room you haven't yet met, but they're not strangers. They're friends you just haven't connected with yet. Now, I want to challenge you today. Be open to what God's got for you. Open your heart to him. Uh, open your heart to relationships, even if you've been burned or hurt. And this is what you have to understand. Healthy relationships with the people around us begin with a healthy relationship with God. If you put Christ first in your life legitimately, he'll begin to bring alignment to your relationships with other people. He'll begin working in your heart to fix your marriage. He'll begin working in your heart to fix the broken relationships around you. He's going to do that. But it begins with him. So that's what I want to challenge you to do. Um, just open your heart to what God wants. Open your heart to what what the relationships around you need, and then see what God will do.
Let me pray over you, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Lord, I pray right now for every person in this place. God, you see the people that are here. They're having a difficult time in their marriage. Lord, they're having a difficult time in their, their workplace and relationship, God. Maybe they've got a son or daughter who's far from you. Lord, maybe they're estranged from someone in their family, and relationship is broken. God, what I know about you is you're the one who wants to restore relationship and mend broken pieces. So God, I pray today that you'd begin to help us take a chance to open up our hearts to the people around us, the relationships around us. Help us to be open to what you're calling us to do, God. I pray that you'd help us see that, that church is not about segmenting an hour of our week, but Lord, it's about inviting you into every aspect of our week. And part of that is in, in inhabiting our relationships. So God, I pray right now that every person in this place would invite you in to be a part of their relationships. Open up their hearts to the people around them and let them not be satisfied with surface-level junk relationships, God. Let us go deep. Let us be intimate with you. Let us be intimate with others. And I pray that you be glorified in this place. In your name we pray, amen. Come on, let's worship together.